I'll bet you that most of you, maybe all of you, have seen a sign like this. If you are a sports fan, I'll guarantee you that you've seen a sign like this for years. I don't know where he's been, but for years there was a guy, right, who wore that weird wig that somehow got himself in the camera for every big sporting event, and he would hold up this sign, John 3.16. And there's a reason he held up John 3.16. More than one person has said that John 3.16 is the entire gospel in a verse. That means it's the comprehensive story of God's love for us and how he did what he did and why he did what he did for us in one verse. So I want us to do three things today. First, I'd like for us to just spend some time ruminating on that verse. We're going to kind of turn the dial a little bit and look at it from several different angles. Then I'd like for us to answer the so what. And then I want to end today by offering an official charge. So here's the charge so you know up front where we're going. God is now and has always been principally interested in our transformation, utter and complete transformation. So uh, for those of you who have experienced that transformation, then I want today to be an excuse for us to remember that and during this season to celebrate it. And there may be some of you here today who have never experienced the transformation that God is interested in. So today is going to be a call to you. Uh, We're going to offer you an opportunity. I have prayed that uh, today would be the day for that. So I'm going to kick us off with prayer before we really dive into that. So let me pray. Father, we are so thankful for your love. It is expansive and audacious, and we're thankful for your demonstration of it consistently in our lives, but especially, especially in the life of Jesus. And Father, during this season, in the middle of this season, we want to remember that he did not stay in a manger. He lived a an exemplary, perfect life, and then he offered himself for us. And having offered himself for us and experienced the full measure of death, your power resurrected him from the grave. And today, Lord, he sits beside you as the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, but also the Lion of Judah that roars on our behalf, that fights our battles for us, that enters in with us and is entering in even today. Lord, we come today in a variety of emotional and spiritual postures and We are so thankful that you have the capacity to speak to each of us in a language that each of us can understand. I pray, God, today for a real reminder of the experience that we've had with you. We forget in the busyness what you've done for us, how you touched us, and how much you've changed us and are changing us. And Lord, I pray especially today for anyone here who has not genuinely experienced your transformative power. We ask in Jesus' name that you would release it today, here. We're bold enough to ask for that. In the mighty name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. 
Amen. All right, some spiritual aerobics. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. We're going to read one verse, and this is the entire gospel in a verse. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Wow! That was awesome. I didn't expect the congregation to join me, so we're going to read it again because you've done that. All right, here we go. For God so loved the world that he that will not perish. You may be seated. All right, so let's summarize it like this. The greatest love from the greatest source offered the greatest gift to the greatest extent toward the greatest end or the greatest result. The greatest love from the greatest source offered the greatest gift to the greatest extent toward the greatest result. Well, let's do that phrase by phrase. And let's begin with the source because that's the easy part. The source, of course, is God, the greatest possible source, enough said. By definition, there's nothing and no one greater. Of course, we can doubt that God exists. I'll bet John must have done that many times in his life. And we can doubt that, that if there is a God, that he, she, or it exists as anything like a personal being. But here it is. After spending three years with Jesus, John is compelled by the notion that not only is God personal, but that he moves toward us with love It's almost unimaginable to think that this supremely great source exercised himself toward us with love, but that's what happened. So let's talk about this love. The gift that we've been given from the greatest source originated from the greatest love. And this love is so completely connected with God that this same John, Jesus' best friend, in another place to a group of friends could say, hey, God is love. There's a little Greek word, autos. It's kind of a connecting word. It has two primary meanings. In certain instances, the word autos can be translated something like in a certain manner or in a certain way. We might translate it with the English phrase, like that. So in English, you might have a sentence like, you know how a high-speed train moves down a track? Well, she throws a ball like that. And it could be that Greek word, autos. But in other contexts, in very special contexts, the word autos is used as an intensifier, something like to the nth degree. It's used much like our word very. So I might say, I'm hungry, but if I haven't eaten for two days, I would say, I'm very hungry. Well, this is how the word is used in John 3.16. Literally, this sentence reads, autos, the love God has for the world. Our God so loved his world. In fact, this love is so intense, it's so audacious that God, the greatest source, driven by this great love, gave the greatest gift. So let's talk for a second about the gift. The word audacious means bold, excessive, and original. God's gift was an audacious gift. God so loved the world that he gave. But let's be reminded that God had no need to give. By definition, God has no need of anything. 
Besides, having created all things, all of reality, all of life, all of us, what more could he give? But he did. Several weeks ago, a few of us had the privilege of going down to South Carolina and watching Casey DeJanney, Heather and Jeff's oldest son, and some of you know Casey, uh, get married. And in that wedding ceremony, the pastor was talking about the difference between transactional love and covenant love. And he gave an example from the Old Testament. The Old Testament, one of the central images of the entire Old Testament was the idea of covenant. That's how they made agreements with one another. In Old Testament period, they would cut covenants with one another. And almost always, those covenants would be ratified, they'd be finalized, they'd be agreed on by an elaborate covenanting ceremony that involves some kind of sacrifice. The word covenant, the Old Testament word for covenant, is related to the word cut because so often these covenants were cut, they were ratified, they were confirmed by some kind of sacrifice. So Genesis 15 describes this pretty bizarre an elaborate ceremony that you and I can't get if we don't understand the Old Testament context behind that. But often in the Old Testament, what would happen is a greater king would ratify a covenant with a lesser king, and the greater king would in effect say, I'm going to protect you, and if anyone comes against you, I'm going to come against them at the risk of my life. But you, you are going to X, Y, and Z. You're going to pay me homage, or you're going to provide me with your cattle, or you're going to do whatever for me in response to your side of the covenant. Now let's have a ceremony, bring some bulls and some animals, we're going to cut those babies in half, lay one on one side and the other, and you're going to, in effect, walk in between the two, saying, in effect, so be it to me if I don't fulfill my side of the covenant. So in Genesis 15, there's this fascinating passage where God offers this to Abraham. You know, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to protect you. And Abraham says, wow. God goes on and he says, hey, the child that you've had with the slave woman, that's not going to be your heir. But you're old and your wife is old, but you're going to have a child. And he's going to be your heir. And I'm going to make him great. So that's my part of the bargain. Your part of the bargain is you live completely before me, constantly righteous, making all right choices. Don't make any mistakes. Your heart fully devoted to me. All right, let's have a covenanting ceremony. And Abraham brings some animals. They cut them and they they lay them apart from one another. And then Abraham falls asleep. The Bible says he falls into a deep sleep. I believe God put Abraham to sleep. And he has this kind of half-wake, half sleeping vision, and a flaming torch passes between the animals on Abraham's behalf. In effect, this is the great king God saying, this is what I'm going to do for you, and now I'm also going to do your part of the covenant. So, so be it to me, God is saying, if you don't fulfill your side of the covenant, this is what will happen to me. I'm going to do your side as well as my side. And that's what God did. In Jesus, God fulfilled our side of the covenant as well as his side. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in London in the late 1800s. Some have called him the greatest preacher of the English language. I like what Spurgeon said 
about this gift when he was preaching on John 3.16. Listen to this. Spurgeon said, Consider then what this gift was that God gave. I should have to labor for expression if I were to attempt to set forth to the full this priceless boon, and I will not court a failure by attempting the impossible. I would love to be able to just talk like that. I will only invite you to think of the sacred person whom the great Father gave in order that he might prove his love to men. It was his only begotten Son, his beloved Son in whom he was well pleased. None of us ever had such a Son to give. Ours are the sons of men. His was the Son of God. The Father gave his other self, one with himself. When the great God gave his Son, he gave God himself. For Jesus is not in his eternal nature less than God. When God gave God for us, he gave himself. What more could he give? God gave his all. He gave himself. Who can measure this love? But yet there's more to this gospel in a verse. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him. In other words, God gave this audacious gift to the greatest extent He gave it to anyone who would believe it. If you remember Bill's reading earlier from John 1, the world that Jesus came to did not understand the gift. In large part, the world that Jesus came to rejected the gift. That's still true today. This was known by God in advance, and still he gave to anyone who would receive it. Finally, the greatest love from the greatest source gave the greatest gift to the greatest extent, and it was given toward the greatest end, or the greatest of all results. The result being that anyone who believes, anyone who believes this, will not perish, will not live a life separated from life itself but will have eternal life. They will be ushered into a forever kind of connection with God. So allow me to explain this a bit, and then we're going to end. A number of years ago, I read a book that was extremely well-known and influential in certain circles for a number of years by a West Coast scholar, an American scholar. He was talking about Jesus' message, and one of Jesus' primary phrases, one of the favorite things that Jesus talked about was the kingdom of God in his teaching. And when Jesus used the phrase kingdom of God, he often was referring to God's reign, God's rule, God's control, God's sovereignty over all things, including us, and its effect in, in our lives and in the world around us. He used a great phrase, this author. He said, the kingdom of God is essentially the presence of the future. So imagine it like this. Imagine that our lives lay out like uh, characters, like a timeline on this stage down here, and this represents time and space and the march of human history and the events of our lives and the events surrounding us in the world and the events of human history across the march of time. Well, the biblical writers were absolutely certain and had experienced God as something profoundly different from that flow. It was as if God lived in another completely different dimension, 
outside of the flow of history and human events, outside of time and space. They lived in this world that was sometimes referred to as the spirit, or at other times they referred to it as the age to come. Because they came to believe, and Jesus confirmed that there was going to be a time when this flow, the flow of human events, time and space, if you will, would come to an end. So human history is not this circle that goes round and round, but it's an arrow pointing in one direction, and it has an end point. And at that end point, there would be the age to come breaking in. So the future, in effect, eternity, an an existence, a dimension outside of the boundaries of time. Well, this scholar made the point that in Jesus, what happened is the future the age to come, the spirit, was parachuted in to our world. And at his landing point, he launched a revolution, a transformative revolution that affects all of our hearts and minds. It it spread geographically and it spread across time. The revolution that Jesus started, the presence of the future. And that's what he still is for us today. And when he landed, and since, what Jesus has been after is changing us to the core. That's the revolution he launched. It wasn't overthrowing Rome, but it was overthrowing ultimately all that separates us from God. Our distance, our sin, our emotional problems, and death itself. All of that would be overcome and wrapped up in the presence of the future. And he longs to do that in our lives still today. In fact, it is what he is doing among most of us and within most of us. All right. Sometimes we think of our religion as a set of behavior. I've said that a few times over the last few weeks. We think that religion is essentially about us making right choices. That This is the central kernel of religion. I've known a lot of good Baptists who thought like that. Lots of good Catholics think that their religion is this. It's about making right choices and good behavior. It's essentially a call to be a a person who behaves better. That's what religion is really like. It's what it's about. But Jesus is after far more than that. Underneath all of our choices, there's another layer, a deeper level, the level of appetite. We choose what we choose because we want certain things. When we drill down to this level, we find our style, our sexual preferences, even our personality leanings. This is why the cowboy from West Texas wants a new pair of boots and has no use for an Armani suit. Again, it's not that the budgetary restraints of the cowboy means that he shouldn't buy the Armani suit. It's not about behaving rightly. There are a few West Texas cowboys who could buy the Armani store if they wanted to. They simply don't want to. Their appetites run in a different direction. But Jesus drives deeper still. Some of you heard me talk about the bargain that Jesus is unwilling to make with us. When Diane and I first, if you'll permit me, I'll repeat myself. When Diane and I first moved to Northern Virginia, we moved to Loudoun County from the poorest neighborhood in Massachusetts. It was a neighborhood that had experienced urban inner-city blight for much of the 20th century. 
And Diane and I spent 13 wonderful years there ministering to the working poor and the desperately poor. Moving to Loudoun County was a little bit of a shock because we moved from that neighborhood to what is now one of the wealthiest communities in America. One of the first things that we did during our years here is we would go knock on doors and survey neighborhoods all over the area. It wasn't to recruit people for our church. We didn't have a church yet. I I was essentially just trying to get a feel for the suburbs. What are you people like? And at the time, and this was almost 20 years ago, at the time, you folks were really nice and receptive. You opened the door and you talked to me. I think it would be very different today. But I asked a series of questions. You were really polite and answered, and sometimes these turned into great epic conversations. And I learned something during that time that affected me profoundly, especially at the start of Gateway, I learned that by and large, you guys like your lives. You know, that became obvious to me because I had just moved from a place where people did not like their lives. They desperately wanted everything about their lives, everything about who they were. All of their circumstances, external and internal, they wanted them to change. And now I've found myself repeatedly, door after door, two feet away from people who like their lives very much. They just want them a little better. And that's the way many of us feel in the suburbs. We like our lives. We've done pretty well. You guys have been pretty successful. You've got really nice homes that have beautiful furniture, and you've got nice cars. By and large, you've got great kids. You like your lives. You want them a little better. Maybe I need the promotion, or I'd like to add a little religion. That'll do it. And I've said before, this is not a bargain that Jesus is willing to make. He does not grant you your life and make it a little better. He asks you to give up your life and to take his. No, underneath the level of appetites lies the fundamental level of identity, who we are. This is how we see ourselves. This is how we feel about ourselves, about our strengths, about our courage, about our our loveliness, about our lovability, about our future, about our past. And when we're damaged, and we're all damaged, this is where that damage resides. So this is where the deep, echoing message of, you're okay, you're, you're worthwhile, you're smart and courageous, you're a beautiful woman, resides. Or, you're not good enough. No one could love you. You'll never make it. You won't amount to anything. You're just never going to be smart or strong. And those messages reverberate and resonate in the deepest places of who we are, our identity. And our appetites grow out of the interplay of our external influences and our identity. And our behavior choices become the obvious result of our appetites. Jesus wants to change our identity. Jesus wants to drill to the deepest places of who we are and make transformation. Some of you know that our verse, John 3.16, comes at the end of one of Jesus' most profound conversations. So this is early in his ministry, and he's experienced some large teaching events, and he's even demonstrated some supernatural healing, and word has begun to get around and circulate. And PhD in 
Old Testament law, which means he is a, both a religious and a secular scholar, a lawyer, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus to have a dialogue with Jesus. We don't know what Nicodemus has seen or heard, but we know that Nicodemus has been teed up with some experience with Jesus. And he comes to Jesus, and Dr. Nick asks Jesus, you know, an epic question. You know, how do I do this spiritual life thing? And they have this intriguing dialogue during which Jesus says to him, hey, listen, Dr. Nick, you're a teacher, you know a lot, you know the law, but, you know, let me tell you, it all boils down to the kernel of this is not figuring out how to exactly align your life with each of the legal requirements. The key to this is not figuring out the dot and the tittle and having it all memorized and tacking it to your forehead and to your doorpost. That's not the key. The key to this, really the starting place and what carries you throughout, is you've got to be born again. You've got to start completely over. There has to be a radical transformation. There, something new, brand new, has to happen inside of you so that you are relaunched. The whole thing, it's like a new, look, Dr. Nick, it's like a new operating system. Look, I'm not going to provide you with some new apps, and I'm not going to give you a new piece of software. I'm going to change the entire way the computer is organized. I'm going to change the operating system. It's going to be smoother, and it's going to be more in line with what you were made to be. But everything's going to be different, Nick. There'll be some bumps and bruises, but everything is going to be different, and you and I are going to have a connection with one another. All that has to happen is same word that John in his editorial repeats in John 3.16. All that has to happen is you just got to own it. You've got to believe it. You've got to step in. You've got to have faith. So now if I can, let me offer you an illustration of biblical faith. An illustration I've used before. I want you to remember it, and I reserve the right to use it again. Because the word faith is thrown out a lot, and I'll bet you... Everyone in this room, very close to everyone in this room, would say, you know, I believe in God. Over 90% of Americans, and religion, of course, is waning in its influence, still, over 90% of Americans say they believe in God. What does the Bible mean when it says belief? Let me give you an illustration. Let's imagine that you guys are right now in a gigantic chasm. You're not sitting in chairs. You're a thousand-foot drop. And a few of you are obviously toast, but some of you were smart enough to get out of the chasm and you came and gathered around behind me here in a little audience. So I say to you, I am the world's greatest tightrope walker. You've never seen me before, so there's a smattering of applause. And then I say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stretch a tightrope across this chasm and I'm going to walk across that chasm. And there's a little of a gasp among you because you guys are smart and you're Northern Virginians, so you're a little careful and calculating and you do your lives very well and you would not do that. So we stretch a line all the way across the chasm from one side to the other. I take a step out onto the line, but being the agile 
incredible athlete that I am, I go ahead and I walk out onto the wire. There are some gasps and some oohs and ahs. I make it to the far side, and I make my way all the way back. Well, now there is polite applause from all of you. So now I say, not only can I do that, I'm now going to ride this bicycle from this side all the way to the other side. More gasp, now you're in. More oohs and ahs. There's no safety line. So I get on the bike, and I edge the first wheel out, and then I begin to pedal. I make it all the way across. Now there's more than polite applause. Wow. Never seen anything like that. I turn around. I come back the other direction. I make it all the way back. You start to throw money at me now. Now you're really excited about this. Now I'm going to do it, and I'm going to put the weight of a human being on the front of my bicycle and ride all the way across and back. You're believers. Wow. Yes. Let's see it. You've almost forgotten the fact that if I flip over, I'm going to be like the rest of you toast. So I put the weight of a human being on the front of the bicycle. I get onto the bike. I get the first wheel out onto the rope, and I begin to pedal. I make it all the way across. You're, now you're going nuts. You're throwing hair pieces. And I come back the other way. I've got the weight of the human being on the front of my bike, and I make it all the way back across. Thunderous applause. You're in. So now I look at the crowd, you're going wild. Yes, Ed, which is the whole goal. Yes, Ed. And I say, okay, now I'm going to ride all the way across the chasm and back. You're all believers in Ed. Yes, you can do it. Okay, I'm going to ride across this chasm and back, and I'm going to put an actual human being on the front of the bike. Can I have a volunteer? That's biblical faith to get on. Biblical faith is not standing here, oh yes, you can do it. Biblical faith is getting on the bike and riding across with me. And when we express that kind of faith, something happens. Something transformative begins in our lives that stretches out over the rest of our lives, across time and across geography. It begins to affect others as well. Now, for many of you, you have had such a moment or such a period in your life. For some of you, it was when you were in high school, and you had this dramatic experience of some kind of encounter, and you got all emotional, and you realized that God was doing something in your life, and you said yes, and you got on the bicycle, and even though it's been at times a rough ride, you've never looked back. And your life has been different because you've been operating with a different operating system. For others of you, it happened in your early 30s when you had a career crisis or a marriage crisis, and you looked for something and you had that same kind of dramatic emotional encounter. For others of you, it was slower dawning. It was more like what we might call a psychological breakthrough. You just began to realize more and more firmly, there's something more than just this. There's something greater than just me. And it's reaching out to me. And, and ultimately, you began to put words to that. And you said yes. And you went all in. And you got on top of the bicycle. And your life has been different. 
And there have been some bumps and bruises since then, but you have operated with a new operating system in a new way going in a completely different direction. There's no longer this self-salvation project now. Your whole life depends on something other than yourself and your own effort. I heard recently of someone who experienced this kind of crossover, this kind of I'll get on the bike. In the last months of his life, he was in his late 60s dying of cancer. And he decided, ultimately, I'm in. I want to be part of this. And I honestly believe that this person crossed over and they got on the bike. They only had a few months to experience the, the fullness of that. And they talked about it regularly during those months. Today, I want to encourage you to remember and to celebrate. How did it happen? Was it a sudden event for you? Was it over the course of weeks or months? Was it a slow dawning for you and suddenly you realized it used to be that your day was like night and now your day is like day. Now you live in the light. Now you have a completely different operating system. Or was it blinding? A sudden realization? Did it come to you as a series of recognitions, or did it come to you as an overwhelming emotional experience? How did it happen for you? And let's remember today, and let's celebrate what God is doing and, and what he's been doing in your life over time. I want you to think today about, through you, the influence that he's had on others. I want you to think about the impact that you have had. I don't want you to think about the mistakes that you've made, because we'll get depressed. But I want you to think instead about how God has used you and the impact of that encounter that you had in your life. Some of you have children. That impact is being felt generationally now. Some of you have expressed the impact that God has had on your life. That has been expressed to workmates or to neighbors or to extended family or to friends. And you're seeing that impact multiplied in the lives of others. I want you to remember and I want you to celebrate. That doesn't look like celebration. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. All God's people said, I'm glad. God is good all the time. Let's try that again. God is good all the time. There are others of you who have never experienced that period in your life that moment in your life. For some of you, you've been casual observers. Others of you have been cheering from the side, periodically. Politely, but periodically. Yes, I believe. But you've never gotten on the bike. You've never said, I'm in. I'm all in. Whatever it is, I want it. I want your way. You've never experienced the utter rearranging of the computer and the changing of the operating system. You've never given your life completely for his. You've struck a different bargain. And I'm telling you today, it's a bargain he's not willing to strike. So, I have prayed for you all week. I don't know if I'm speaking to one of you or nine of you, but I have prayed for you that today would be your day. 
at least the beginning, that today you would experience the first hints of transformation, not observation, but you would get on the bike today. Now look, this is not easy, but it's really, really simple. To as many as received him, the same John said, to as many as received him, whoever believes, to as many as received him, he gave them the right to have their identity changed, to become children of God. Not to become religious, but to become children of God. So I want you to do something with me. We're going to pause, and I'm going to pray. And I'm going to encourage you in this moment to do business. Seriously, don't waste these moments. I want you to spend some time actually remembering when and how you dialed in. And I want you to celebrate. And I want you to be thankful this morning. I want you to say, thank you, God. And I want you to allow him to show you how your life has been like a giant pebble thrown into a pond with ripples moving out from it. I want you to allow him to show you how much rejoicing there's going to be when the future comes because of your impact on the people around you. How many people are going to be there with us because of you? How many people whose lives have been completely changed because of the partial influence of your life or solely because of the influence of your life, but for others of you? I want you to consider today stepping onto the bike. I know you don't know exactly what that means. Neither do I know what it means for you, but he does. I want you to consider today, if you've never said a full-throated yes, I want you to consider making today the day to fully offer yourself to him. We're going to do that during prayer. I'm going to lead us in some prayer, some celebration. We're going to keep our head bowed and our eyes closed. But if today, if there's one of you or four of you for whom today is the day, then I'm going to ask you to do two things in a minute during prayer. I'm going to ask you to, yes, I'm going like an old school evangelist. I'm going to ask you to stand. If today's the day for you, I'm going to ask you to stand. You're going to know that because you feel the press of his hand on your heart right now. And if it's happening right now, you know what I mean. You're going to feel his press. And you're going to need today to say to him, okay, I'm done observing. I'm going to step in. I'm going to get on the bike today. And the only other thing I'd ask is, after the service today, come down and tell me what you were thinking and why. Let's talk about it. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am so thankful for my parents, for the influence of their consistency and their godly efforts in my life and toward me. I feel like you captured my heart as a very young man, and I'm so sorry for times of rebellion and wasted time. I thank you for not letting go and recapturing me. I'm so thankful, Lord, for the privilege of being able to participate with you in the lives of others, to see literally you impacting other people through me, it's overwhelming. God, we rejoice now, all of us. We rejoice in the time when you captured our hearts. 
the time when you spoke, the time when we understood. For some of us, Lord, this was a moment, and we remember that moment this morning. For others of us, Lord, this was a period, and you dawned on us slowly. Maybe our heads were harder or our hearts were harder, but you had your way, your love won, and we're so thankful. We rejoice at the opportunity to participate with you and to have our lives literally affect the lives of others. Thank you. Father, I pray this morning especially for those who have been observers, those who have not yet fully gotten on the bike. In some cases, Lord, they are really, really good people. And yet, that's not the bargain you make. I pray, Lord, that out of your power, you would speak clearly, discernibly, and draw them. Heart, mind, will, draw them to yourself. Okay, let's take a moment. Just keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. If there's anyone this morning who wants to step in, you want to, for the first time, say, I'm on the bike. I'm on. I want to get on. I want all of this. And just express that to him. Stand. You'll know it if he's speaking. You'll know it. And if he is, I don't care what your plans were. I Make that step and stand. Okay, keep your eyes closed. Remain standing, those of you who are standing. Thanks. I don't think we're finished. If he's pressing on your heart, don't say no. Don't miss an opportunity to jump on. Father, we are overwhelmed and profoundly humbled by first steps in your direction. Lord, we recognize that in some cases this is the the effect of years of your movement. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for coming. Thank you for parachuting in and becoming present and bringing the future with you. Thank you that you change us. Thank you that you change our identity. So it becomes really possible for appetites to change. They don't change overnight, Lord, but it becomes possible. And then behavior. We end up being people who kind of look like you, which is utterly amazing. We thank you so much. Gateway, let's stand together and sing a closing hymn. I want to ask those of you who have stood, I don't know what happened, but thank you. It's awesome and it's audacious. <laughs> and come speak to me afterwards and uh, let's just talk about uh, what that means. I promise we won't have a religious conversation. I just want to know what you were thinking and what happened so we can do some work together. Son of God, shaper of the stars, you alone, dweller of my heart, mighty King, beautiful you are. How beautiful, Son of God, the Father's gift to us, you alone, broken on the altar of love, precious Lamb, 
Freedom's in your blood. It's in your blood, Jesus. Holy one, I sing to you. Forgive and Savior. I'm overcome. Your great love for me. in prayer. Let's just stand before we go. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the audacious gift that you have given us in Jesus. And for anyone who this morning, for the very first time, opened their heart to you, uh, we pray that you would confirm that decision in their heart. We pray that you would seal that decision and bring people alongside them that would help them know how to walk with you. Thank you so much for that gift. Thank you, God, for the audacious opportunities 
that you've given to us as a church family in this next year. And we pray that you would help us to seize every one of those opportunities to boldly follow you in faith. And we pray for the opportunities this week. You know, we've offered our financial gifts, but we offer our week to you, Lord. And we pray for conversations, for opportunities to serve people, for opportunities to pray for people, opportunities just to listen. We offer you this week, and we ask that you would use it to bring honor and glory to your name. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, have a great week.